This morning, Bible reading will be coming from 2 Corinthians, 3rd chapter, verses 12 through 16. If you're using the Pew Bibles, that's page 1026. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, but their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains uplifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Good morning. So good to be here this morning. I want to start off by saying thank you. Thank you as a congregation for not only the love and the time that you give to the youth program, but I want to thank you specifically this morning for the investment that you make in our life, in my life, and for the interns. It's just a, a joy to be a small part of the work here. I want to thank Philip and David and the elders for asking me and allowing me the opportunity to speak this morning. I love youth ministry, I love kids, I love working with kids, but also love to preach. And so it's just an exciting opportunity that I have this morning. Have you ever at any point in your life, maybe looking back on life, you took so much joy, you took so much pride, you were so excited about something, but a few weeks later something bigger, something better came out and that joy and that excitement that you had was soon gone. I think about three examples in my life. Growing up, my dad always had one rule, or actually this is one of many, many rules. He said, you're not going to get a phone until you turn 16. And so I just kind of accepted that, but then I got to school and all my friends were getting phones, so I had to have a phone, right? And so if dad doesn't give in to something, who do you go to? I went to mom. And she gave in. Um, and at 14, I got a phone, and I actually have a picture of my first phone that's there in the, the top left corner. It's like a prepaid phone. I thought it was really cool. But now when we look at what we have, it all of a sudden becomes nothing. Uh, the second thing is I didn't even go back far to find a picture like this. I searched the 1995 TV. Back in 1995, yeah, those things that look very small and it takes like three or four people to fit it through a door. And then we look at what we have now. And perhaps my favorite is my Game Boy. Man, I love that thing. We, me and my, I had two older brothers, and so we would take it on car rides. But there was one problem with an original Game Boy. When it was daytime, it was good. But when it turned nighttime, there wasn't even a light on it. And I can remember one year for my birthday, I got this cool little contraption. It was like a magnifying glass and a light built in. And I just, I was head over heels for that thing. I could play my Game Boy. I didn't have to keep it like right up at my face. And I could even see it in the dark. We take joy in stuff that soon fades away. What would you think this morning if I brought you one of these three things and I was super excited about it and I thought it was brand new to me, but you look at it and say, man, this is like 10 years old. I've had this for a long time. When I look at it, even technology and the way of life today and just everything that, that goes with life, a question I find myself a lot of times is asking is how does it get any better? 
all of the stuff that we have that, that we have every single day, how does it get any better? How does the technology improve? And so on and so forth. And when I look at Exodus chapter 34, I see a, a scenario when Moses went up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments and he comes down and his face is shining because he was in the presence of God. I think to myself, how can it get any better than that? You're in the presence of God and the people come down and they see Moses and his face is shining so he has to put a veil over his face so that they can even look at him. How does it get better than being in the glory of the Lord and it is evident? But then I turn to Matthew chapter 13 and verse 17 where it says, Many prophets and righteous people have longed to see what you see, yet they did not see it. And to hear what you hear, yet they did not hear it. And when I read that verse, it, it becomes very evident to me that something out there is better. The glory that Moses had when he was in the presence of the Lord, something out there is better. And in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 13, we get that answer. The Bible says, in speaking of the new covenant, he has made the first one obsolete. The old covenant and the new covenant. Though many people, even Jews in the New Testament, and we're going to get to this in just a second, they thought that the old law, nothing could get better. But yet when the new law comes, when Jesus comes... That is far more better. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I want you to keep that, that concept in mind of, of the old law and how the Israelites thought it couldn't get any better. Verse 12, it says, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And so we look at the, the old law in comparison to the new law for the Israelites and for the Jews. What we see is in many times in the book of Galatians and Corinthians and a lot of other places in the New Testament, we see that the Jews, they wanted to take a, a little part of the old law with them to the new law. Maybe we see such scenarios such as circumcision or food laws, or traditions, or festivals, or the list could go on and on, but they wanted a, a piece of the old law with the new law, and that's just not the way that God had it designed. And so specifically in this passage, we see that for the Israelites, the veil that kept them from turning, from giving their all to Jesus, was the old law. Though they wanted to give their life to Christ, they wanted to keep a little part of the old law with them. And, and the scripture says that's just not possible. You've got to leave everything behind you. And so that veil was the old law. But when we think about it today, maybe that veil for us isn't the old law. But I can assure you that there is something out there. Maybe it's a person, maybe it's a thing, maybe it's something that you put upon yourself, or maybe it's just a situation that you have been given is something out there is trying to hinder you from giving your all to Jesus. 
Because you see, it isn't, Christianity isn't about giving some of ourselves. And this, this fits perfectly with what we've been talking about, is, is giving our all and connecting for life. It isn't about just giving a little bit of ourselves. It's giving everything that we have. And so as we begin this morning, I want you to be thinking to yourself, is what is that veil for you? What is that veil that is trying to separate you from giving your life to Christ? Because you see, it's easy to say when I say the phrase giving your life, is we automatically assume baptism. And I'm not saying that's not an important part because that is a very key component, but there is a lot more to giving your life to Christ than just putting him on in baptism. It is a decision, it is a commitment that we make every single day. The veil for the Israelites was the old law. What is that veil for you? And so when, when we think about removing the veil, it says when you turn to the Lord, the veil is removed. What, what do we gain? What, what, is, what is in it for us to want us to make to turn to the Lord? What, what exciting news do we have that makes us want to put this stuff behind us and turn to the Lord? Let's go in the same passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I want us to notice a few verses here. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 4. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our own sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And then verse 12 and 13. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. We see that when we turn to the Lord, we have courage and we have boldness. When I think about the word courage, maybe if I went around the auditorium this morning and I said, who is a hero in your life? I would probably assume that most of us would give a name and a story as to why that person is a hero. I was very curious about courageous stories out there, so I just searched on the internet stories of courage. And the first one that popped up was a, a man by the name of Witold Pilecki. He was a Polish man, he was a 39 year old. Uh, he was a, a veteran of the Polish army. But in World War II, he decided that he was gonna volunteer to go to Auschwitz as a prisoner. He volunteered himself to go inside the concentration camp to be tortured, to be tormented, because he wanted to give the outside intelligence as to what was going on. Three years later, in 1943, surprisingly, I didn't even know this happened, as he escaped. He escaped Auschwitz. He later uh, helped plan the, the Warsaw Revolt. Uh, he was a part of many other uprisings that eventually led um, to the concentration camps being done away with, but in 1948, he was executed by Stalin for, for that very thing. And what's interesting about this story is that no one even knew he existed until 1989, because people had hidden his story, they didn't want to know it happened, but in 1989, we found out about Witzold Pilecki. I think about Chernobyl, and in 1986, when that Unit 4 exploded, it was crazy, and a lot of people died, and a lot of people suffered from the radiation. 
But as that, that unit four exploded, there was a, a pool of water that was used in case of an emergency like this for radioactive fluids to flow into, but they didn't have a clue how much was gonna flow into it that day. And so it was getting to a point where it was going to explode again and there was gonna be a thermal radiation instead of what happened, which is they don't even know the outcome of what would have happened because of that. But there were three men, Alexi, Valerie, and Boris. They were there, they saw what was happening, they knew that if something didn't happen that many more people were gonna die. And so they suited up in their scuba, deer, uh, scuba gear and they dove into the waters and they went in and released the levee so the waters could flow out. Three days later, those three men died and they were buried in a lead coffin. They're called the Chernobyl suicide scuba divers. Because of these courageous stories, they brought about change. But maybe when, when I look at my life and maybe when you look at your life, maybe you don't see that kind of courage that you need. Maybe you don't see the courage to do something that's going to change someone's life or save someone's life. I think about many stories of courage in the Bible. I think about the courage of Paul. He had the courage to change. He had the courage to change what he had gone through. He had the courage to change his actions. He was on that road to Damascus and he had been persecuting Christians. He had even killed Christians. But when he saw Jesus... He was willing to drop everything for the sake of Christ. I think about the courage of David, how he had the courage to confront Goliath. He was the underdog, no doubt he was the underdog, but he didn't care. He was willing to risk it because who was on his side? He knew who was, who was on his side and he wasn't afraid to say it. God was on his side. When he defeated Goliath, he didn't take credit for it. He gave all of the credit to God because he knew that God was on his side and he knew that he could win if God was on his side. But maybe if you look at your life, you don't need that kind of courage. Because a lot of times when I look at my life, it isn't I need the courage to do something just crazy where others can see me and think I'm really good for doing it. Maybe you need the courage of Daniel. I think about the story of Daniel and how King Darius sent out a decree that, that said you're no longer able to worship the Lord God. In our society today, maybe you're, we're feeling all kind of pressure to think a certain way, to act a certain way, to, to not be as judgmental or to, or to just accept anything. And I think about the story of Daniel and how when it says that he had heard this decree was sent out, he went to his room with his window open and he prayed. And I'll be honest, for a long time, when I read that story and I, I saw how he left his window open, I thought, you know, how arrogant of Daniel. To, to go and to, to want other people to see him. But when I look into the story a little bit deeper, it isn't that he was trying to be arrogant. It was being that he refused to give in to the world. He refused to give in to people who were trying to get him to go against God. He stuck with what he had done that got him up there to this point. I think about the story in Acts chapter 4 when Peter and John are preaching and they're told that, that they're going to have to stop. And they say, whether it is right for us to give heed to you or to give heed to God, you be the judge. They were not about to compromise for their faith and for their actions. When we turn to the Lord, we have courage and boldness. The second thing is, is when we turn to the Lord, we behold glory. Notice verse 18 of chapter 3. 
And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one decree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I want you to go back to Exodus chapter 34 and to think about that, to think about how when Moses went up on that mountain, he received the glory of the Lord. His face was shining when he came down. For us today as Christians, we think about the, the beauty of that glory and what it must have been, but we also understand the glory that he received was coming to an end just as he knew because the new law is far better. Think about the glory that was beheld when people saw the face of Moses. How much more should the glory of the New Testament be? How much more should the glory of Jesus be? And so that begs the question, is when people see you, do they see the glory of the Lord? When people see you, do they see the glory of the Lord? I've used this illustration a few times with the youth, but I just love this illustration. If you will go ahead and put that picture up on the screen. This is a picture, it may look to you just like a forest, but I wish I had more time so that you could look at it longer and, and try to find some stuff. But in this picture, there are eight Navy SEALs. Eight Navy SEALs are hidden in this picture. And I'm going to be honest, I probably looked at this thing for 30 minutes and I honestly could not find one. I'm afraid that if I were to put a picture up of the workplace or to pick, put a picture up of the halls at school or of your household, what would I see? What would you see? What does God see? Does he see a, a beautiful picture like this? Because even if people weren't hidden, that's still a pretty picture. But when we see this picture, when God sees our everyday life, does he see people who are sticking out or does he see people who are fitting in? Because you see, it's very easy to go throughout our normal walks of life, to go to the places that we go, to see the people that we see, and to just try to, to, to sit back and not get involved with anything. But you see, as Christians, it's not about not participating in stuff. In, in the book of Romans in chapter 1, we read the quote-unquote sin list there at the end of, of the chapter. And, and the Bible says that not only do those people who practice these such things deserve to die, but those who approve of them. You see, brothers and sisters, it's not just enough to live in the world. It's not just enough to, to not be in the world, but of the world. We have to stand out. Matthew chapter 5, we read about you are the light of the world. A city set on the hill cannot be hidden. All of the darkness in the world cannot put out one light. All of the darkness in the world cannot put out one light. If there were one guy in that picture who wasn't camouflaged up, would you be able to see him? Absolutely. It doesn't matter what else is going on around him. It doesn't matter how good the other people are hidden. If he is not camouflaged, he's going to stick out. In our walk of life every day, we need to be that person who is willing to stick out. We need to be that person who is willing to be the light in the midst of a dark world. It may be scary sometimes, but just as we talked about, when we turn to the Lord, we receive courage 
and we receive boldness. The third thing that we receive, we read in chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. We do not lose heart. When we turn to the Lord, we receive this confidence and we receive this boldness and we receive this encouragement to never give up. I think about stories in the Old Testament. I think about Genesis chapter 14 where Lot had escaped and, and ran away and Abraham's 318 servants go out and defeat Babylon. I think about in Judges chapter 7 and verse 8 where Gideon's 300 started out with 22,000, noted it down to 10,000, then he was down to 300. Very much the underdog, but they won. And I think about 1 Samuel chapter 17, we talked about where David uh, defeats Goliath. Uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 14, when Ethiopia's one million come up against the nation of Judah, and Judah is victorious. And then I think about in Revelation chapter 12, where Michael and his archangels defeat Satan and, and Satan is thrown down to earth. Brothers and sisters, God has never lost. It doesn't matter who goes up against him. It doesn't matter how many people come up against him. God has never lost and he never will. And the beautiful thing for me and you this morning is that if we are with God, we will never lose either. If God is on our side, we will be victorious no matter what we're going up against. And so when we look, about, when we look at these things and we look at, at, at the blessings that we receive, the question that I have is why not? You know, when I look at my life and when I, I see the changes that I need to make and I see the blessings that come from it, the blessings far outseed the risk. And so I, the question is, is why don't people just turn to the Lord? But it's not always that easy, is it? I think there are a few things that, that come in our way. The list could go on and on, but I want, I want to present to you two this morning. There's a story I read of a young man. He, his name was Kevin Hughes. Um, he, he played football. He was uh, a lineman. But the story here is more centered on probably the quarterback. And so the, the quarterback, he, he was blessed with the opportunity to play basketball and baseball and football. Um, he was also blessed to have several uh, offices uh, in the class and in other clubs. And so this young man and, and Kevin, they weren't the best of friends, but, but they were friends. For, for any of you who know sports, a quarterback better be friends with their linemen, and if they're not, they better act like it, at least. And so... Austin and Kevin had a relationship, nothing, nothing special, but, but they were friends. Kevin was not a Christian, and this young man was. And so football season comes around, it's, it's his junior year, both of their junior year, and so the quarterback, after the season, decides that he's not going to play again. Uh, no harsh feelings, nobody on the team, they, they, weren't, they wanted him to play, but they didn't exactly, they weren't going to make him. But Kevin didn't give in. Kevin wasn't going to have it so easy. And so Kevin approached this young man several times, probably once or twice a week, just saying, man, you've got to play football. 
And so after a couple of months, the young man finally was fed up. He, didn't under, he wasn't even a good quarterback. And so he went to Kevin and he said, man, why do you want me to play? I'm not even a good quarterback. The backup's better than me. Y'all are going to be fine. But the story that I read said that the young man will never forget his response. He said, I don't care how good you are at football. I care about how good you are at life. There are people on this team who need your example. There are people on this team who need you as a Christian. The young man had never thought about it before because he wasn't very out there about his faith. He didn't really talk to everyone about it. He just tried to, to live the Christian life and be an example through his actions. He said a few prayers before practice and stuff like that, but it was nothing, nothing spectacular. But Kevin noticed, and Kevin wanted people to notice. Kevin got in with, with the wrong crowd. He was a good kid, good attitude, but he just got in with the wrong crowd and probably did some things that he shouldn't. But the, the young man will never forget what Kevin put on Facebook in December. It says something to the effect of, when I die, I don't want my friends to be sad. I want them to know that I'm going to be with God. And when the young man saw this, he knew he had to talk to Kevin. As many times as he had tried to be an, an example through his actions, it just wasn't enough. He needed to talk to Kevin. And so he saw him in the hallway the next day and he said, Kevin, I need to talk to you about something. And Kevin said, what is it? And he couldn't do it. And so the next day, day after day, Kevin, 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 hey man, come here. It never happened. Thursday, February 9th, 2012. The day had started just as any other day did at school, but it didn't take long for something to feel different. It was probably about 9.30 in the morning when the school got the news that Kevin had been killed in a car wreck on the way to school. And um, the family had asked that the football team be the honorary pallbearers. And even though this young man wasn't going to play the next year, he got to wear his uniform and, and line the, the gymnasium as Kevin's body was rolled out. And the story says that the young man didn't even have the courage to look up at the casket when it rolled by him because he knew that he didn't take the opportunity. The young man in the story was me. I knew Kevin needed Jesus. I knew that he needed something. And I had every intention on going to talk to him, but I didn't. And I think one of the things that plagues us as Christians is intention. And maybe when you think about giving your all to Jesus, you, you think about intentions. I know I do because I, I have so many things I want to do. I have so many things I know I need to do, people I need to talk to, things I need to get done in, in the Christian life. But talking about something and doing something are two different, different things. And I think about a story in Matthew chapter 21. It's the parable of two sons. And Jesus is talking to the people there and he says, there were two sons. One said, I will not do it. The other said, I will do it. 
However, the one who said, I will not do it, later up, did it. And the one who said, I will do it, didn't do it. He said, which one did the right thing? And the people say, the one who said he wouldn't do it, but he did later on. And I've got to be honest, a lot of times I find myself being the other person, the, the person saying, you know what, I'm going to do it, but I never do. And so this morning, I want us to challenge us with this phrase, is instead of being a people with intentions, let's be an intentional people. Because you see, when we're, in a t when we're an intentional people, it doesn't matter what the outcome is going to be. It doesn't matter what the consequences are going to be. We're going to do it because we know it's right. But if we're just a people with intentions, we can sit here in these pews and talk about what we want to get done, but it never gets done. We need to be a people not with intentions, but intentional people. While we don't remove the veil, number one, intentions. The second thing is this, is I want you to imagine that I told you back in the back parking lot there's a truck out there and that the front door is unlocked and in it you'll find a candy bar and you can go out there and you can get that candy bar and it's yours. I can assure you that every person in here is picturing a specific truck, a specific make, a specific model, a specific color. You're also, you've got a certain candy bar in, in mind. I say that to say this, is when I say the word, your past, you think of stuff that you regret. You think of things that you wish you could have done differently, maybe things you said to people, maybe things you've done to people that hurt, regret. But oh, we, we just need to forgive and forget, right? I could imagine if I were to go around and ask you to raise your hand, if forgiving and forgetting has ever worked for you, I probably wouldn't get a hand. It's hard to forget. It's hard to forget what other people have done to us. It's hard to forget what we've done to other people. But if you're anything like me, it's, it's a lot of times really hard to forget what I've done to myself. Regret. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 51. Psalm chapter 51. David, the man after God's own heart, he had his fair share of mess-ups. Listen to this, verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God. As we read this, I want you to keep track of how many times he asked for the ability to forget what he's done. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. The number of times is zero. He doesn't, he doesn't plead for the ability to forget. He pleads 
for God's forgiveness. I think about other verses like Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18. It says, Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, I will make them whiter than snow. Though they be like crimson, they shall become like wool. Or Isaiah chapter 38 and verse 17 where it says, You brought me forth from the pit of destruction in love, and you have cast my sins behind your back. Or Micah chapter 7 and verse 17 and 18 where it says, He will not delight in our sin because he delights in steadfast love. He will have compassion on us and he will crush our iniquities underfoot and he will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. For a long time, I have to admit that I tried to forgive and forget, but it never works. But I think about David and I think about all of the things that he went through and the wisdom that he had. And I think one thing that he would, would say to us today it's through Psalm chapter 51. He isn't saying forgive and forget. He's saying what's important is to forgive and to never forget that you're forgiven. Because you see, it doesn't matter how many times we try to forget something. If God remembers it, that's all that matters. But on the contrary, it doesn't matter how many times we remember something. If God has forgotten it, that's all that matters. The beautiful short statement in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 12, in regards to their iniquities, I will remember their sins no more. I will remember their sins no more. Removing the veil. There are a ton of blessings that we receive and we didn't even hit just a glimpse of them. But with those blessings come something that we have to give up. Maybe for you it is the, the intentions and it's the regret. Maybe it's other things. But this morning, I want to leave you with this question. Is what veil do you need to remove? What is it in your life that you look back on or you look at right now and you see, you know, that thing right there is trying to keep me from God. Brothers and sisters, for the Israelites, better times were coming. For the Jews, better times were coming. But for us, we have all that we need. Jesus' blood can forgive us, can cleanse us, can give us hope and boldness, can behold the glory of the Lord through us. And I am so thankful that we can never lose heart because we have the hope of heaven. What veil do you need to remove? If we can help you, please come and sit.